Her. The podcast. The naked truth about women. Her mind. Her body. Her life. It's all about her. Hi, I'm Dr. Pam Peek, and welcome to episode 249 of Her, the podcast, where, well, you're going to hear the naked truth about her mind, her body, her life, and today, her lifestyle in the era of COVID-19. I am so excited about this show. It's going to be absolutely terrific. Just know that before we begin, this episode is made possible by our wonderful friends at Smarty Pants Women's Vitamins, the delicious once-a-day gummies that contain all of the essential vitamins, minerals, and omega oils customized just for women. To learn more, hop on over to SmartyPantsVitamins.com. And here's your first official reminder to click on iTunes after this episode to rate and review the show because I want to hear your feedback. It is golden. I love to hear from you. And our entire team loves to hear from you. Well, there you have it. Your first official reminder. All right, it's time for her. I can't even wait for this episode. I've been sitting here just, all right, let's get through the other ones. Let's get to Dr. David Katz. If you don't know who he is by now, then I don't know where you've been living lately because he is everywhere with an extraordinary message about COVID-19 and what this pandemic globally really means to us. Now, Dr. Katz is president of True Health Initiative, the CEO of Diet ID, the founding director of the Prevention Research Center at Yale University Griffin Hospital and the former president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, where he has absolutely uh, been a founder and a maverick in the entire field of lifestyle medicine. And now he's a voice, an incredibly powerful voice about how lifestyle fits into this whole puzzle and this uncertainty about what's going on with this global pandemic that envelops all of our lives, uh, both medically, health-wise, and also economically, um, around the globe. Uh, You probably uh, read his op-eds in the New York Times, seen him on television, I like to say that he's just kind of all over the spectrum. Let's see now, Mark, uh, what was it? It was Mark Levin um, on Fox. And then uh, who was the latest one? Tell us, tell us. Uh, Bill Maher. There you go. And that was a fabulous interview. So, David, welcome to the Her Podcast. Pam, you left out one of my most important credentials. It was a very nice intro, but you didn't say longtime friend of Pam Peak. Yay. <laughs> All right. I mean, come right, on. Listen, let's, man. Let's, that, sure that's, hit, let's, let's hit that, the highlights here. Come that's on. street creds just to get on the damn <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Definitely. Right, and I'm listen. And listen, everyone yeah. out there in the podcast in, in the, her podcast land, run out and grab David's new book, which he co-authored with someone I absolutely love, and that's Mark Bittman. And the name of the book is fairly simple: How to Eat. You know, <laughs> I mean, I love it. It's not one of these ridiculously long titles that tries to envelop the world. It's it's kind of easy: How to Eat. 
I love it. I actually got the audio and I listened to it while I'm walking my two beloved German shepherds, which I seem to be doing a lot of these days since there's no, you know, trains and planes and, and whatever else. But but there it is nonetheless. So, David, um, first of all, um, on behalf of our entire team here at the Her Podcast, um, I, I just can't thank you enough for being uh, the voice of reason um, which is what I think if you read a lot of the reviews of what you've done, uh, people are now referring to you as the voice of reason. Um, what I'd like you to do, if you could, just to kind of uh, provide narrative and context, what is your what is your baseline take on what we should be doing today um, as we're entering, God knows, what is it, the fifth week, sixth week of our quarantine, depending yeah. upon, you know, yeah. where you started this. What is your take, Did this whole issue of how we should really move forward? Well, again, Pam, thanks for all the kind words of intro. So what I've argued for from the start of all this is is what I call total harm minimization. And I think what I brought to bear more than anything else is just the native tendency to see the big picture that can hide in plain sight. So all of my work related to diet, it's because diet is the single leading cause of premature death and chronic disease in our country. So it, you know, it just made sense to take in the big picture and say, if you're going to be a health professional, you've got to be focused on the leading cause of premature death. So I, I tend to see, you know, if you will, the elephant in the room that otherwise can go overlooked. And in this situation from the start, I saw two things that seemed really, really important to me. The first was, and, and this began with data out of China and South Korea before this was really much of a problem in the United States. South Korea consistently reported that 98 to 99% of all cases of COVID were mild and that the severe cases were densely concentrated in older people and people with major chronic illness. And then that pattern repeated all around the world. Even in Italy, where for a while our attention was riveted with you know, the, their high mortality and hospitals overwhelmed, only, I think, 2.1% of the deaths that occurred in Italy occurred in people under age 70, and only 1.2% of them occurred in people free of heart disease, diabetes, hypertension. And you put the math together, and basically what it said was a lot of elderly sick people are succumbing to severe coronavirus infection and dying. And most of the rest of the population either doesn't get it or, in cases like Italy where it was widespread, gets it and gets over it. So that was the first key insight, that this is two very different diseases in a highly vulnerable small group of the population and a much larger segment of the population that isn't highly vulnerable. And then the, the second insight comes from a long career in public health. We worry a lot about social determinants of health. We recognize that the, the single leading determinant of, of all health outcomes uh, is you know, whether or not you can make a living. Uh, poverty is a huge determinant of every health outcome. And when people are desperate, destitute, food insecure, unemployed, really bad things happen. Things like hunger, things like addiction, things like suicide, domestic violence. And then we started to see signs uh, of all that as we got into the early response to COVID, an immediate surge in gun sales, an immediate surge in domestic violence as people were you know, forced to hunker in their homes, 
Uh, and there's been a reported surge in suicides and, and on it goes. So I just thought from the start, okay, then there's more than one way for this contagion to hurt and kill people. One way is to infect them, but the other way is to cause societal collapse, economic mayhem, degrade the social determinants of health, and harm maybe orders of magnitude more people that way than are directly harmed by the virus. And all of that is bad. And whatever we can do to prevent any of that is good. And that's a combination of A, protecting the highly vulnerable from exposure to this virus, and B, making sure we don't shut everything else down unnecessarily, because there the cure could be worse than the disease. And that's what the New York Times wound up calling the, the piece that I first published there on March 20th, let's not let the cure be worse than the disease, which unfortunately, you know, got translated into a, a presidential tweet because there, there was a lot of nuance there. I, I never said everybody, you know, back to work by Easter. What I was saying is we should carefully risk stratify the population, know who's at high risk and needs to be protected. Let's make sure they are. Who's at low risk and can safely be out in the world so we actually keep society running because that's a really important part of public health too. So that's that's what I've been about from the start. And now, Pam, you know, it's it's weeks later. A lot's happened. We've seen more data from the U.S. around the world. I still feel that way. I volunteered uh, as a physician in New York City. I worked three 12-hour shifts um, in support of colleagues in an emergency department in the Bronx. So I've seen the enemy up close and personal. I see, I've seen people die of COVID. I've seen people be admitted. I've also seen people get sent home because they were going to be fine. Um, I still feel that way. You know, I, I, I think we've, we've been looking at two extreme responses to this because we're such a polarized society. One would be, okay, the sky is falling. Everybody hunker in a bunker uh, and life as we knew it is over. And, you know, let's hope there's a vaccine in 18 months. I, I reject that. I think it's preposterous. I think it's calamitous. Um, and at the other extreme, we've got, you know, everybody in the water, including grandma and grandpa, and never mind the riptides and the sharks. And I think that's preposterous, too. So, I, you know, I, I see the best way to minimize total harm on the middle path our society, alas, tends to be blind to. Interesting. Um, and, and I think that, you know, uh, that type of um, common sense and reason to me um, is is really picking up a lot of resonating with um, experts, um, whether they are epidemiologists. I also have a master's in public health. So um, uh, the work that I have done in epidemiology, uh, you know, uh, forces me to look at numbers. I like to look at case fatality rates, infectious fatality rates. I need to understand that denominator much better. Um, I think that all of us would agree that it would have been nice to do a, to have done a lot more testing of the American population much earlier so that we were, you know, locked and loaded, armed and dangerous with a lot of data. I tend to be data driven, you know, call me crazy, but <laughs> I kind of like to have some metrics here to work with. Um, and, and I think it helps people too. It drives public policy if you have some more uh, metrics. Wouldn't you agree? I call you the opposite of crazy. I, I, I call you spot on right. Totally agree. And so, you know, when I wrote about this initially, that was the discussion, a data-driven pivot from where we are now, which is sort of lock everything down, flatten the curve, 
which, you know, okay, makes sense in phase one. So you minimize the hospital overload and such. But we need a data-driven pivot to the next phase where people start returning to the world, but based on risk. And you're absolutely correct, Pam. We agree completely. You can't know people's risk if you don't have data. And we know, and, and this may be a shock to listeners, but, you know, honestly, from certainly from U.S. data, we know almost nothing about the case fatality rate because you can't know a rate unless you have both the numerator, the number of deaths, and the denominator, the number of cases. We don't know the number of cases because, you know, when, when people get acutely ill, you tend to notice. When people need a hospital bed, you really tend to notice. When people need an ICU and a ventilator, for sure you notice. And when people die of an infectious disease, that tends to be hard to overlook. But people who had asymptomatic bouts, you know, it, it looks like in young people, maybe the majority of infections with COVID-19 are asymptomatic. Well, that's easy to overlook. And mild symptoms that aren't worth telling anybody about, also easy to overlook. Well, you know, we now have some testing from New York and other places suggesting that millions of Americans have had this thing and gotten over it. Um, Sweden is reporting that they, they are well on their way to herd immunity with exposure of most of the population. And most of those cases don't produce severe illness, don't result in hospitalization. Absent testing where you go out and look for this, all you find out about are the severe cases because they come to you. The mild cases don't, the severe cases do. You get a massively distorted impression. You know, you wind up thinking, oh, dear God, every case of this is terrible. Well, no, only the terrible cases show up at the emergency room. There may be a thousand mild cases or even 10,000 mild cases for every one of those you don't know about unless you go looking. So, you know, all of these reports that the case fatality rate may be 3% or 4% or 5%, actually, it, it's fairly clear from the global data that it's a fraction of a percent, and it may be a small fraction of a percent. You know, and and I completely agree. I mean, I, I like the work uh, done by Ioannidis. Um, I'm probably saying his name wrong. Um, at Stanford, um, when he did the uh, Santa Clara study, um, and uh, this really sort of goes hand in hand with the USC study as well. Um, you know, where he's rejiggered the numbers. I love him because I followed him actually for a long time. If you look at his seminal paper, he's kind of the guy you, you, you're you just terrified of. If he's going to review your study, he will find everything wrong with it, everything. He will not miss anything because he's literally um, uh, an expert in being able to look at data uh, ridiculously critically and being able to... Um, pinpoint where you might want to redo that narrative all over again and redo the metrics. So when he is able to conclude that uh, when he looks at numbers, and obviously you can't measure everyone in the United States, so there's going to be extrapolation going on. But, I mean, he's really looking at something much more akin to the numbers associated with a bad case of the, a bad year of the flu or the incidence in the flu, which is less than 1%. I mean, the flu itself being, you know, 0.1%. So, you know, that's the kind of thing I love. One of the things you mentioned, you mentioned the curve. I have been uh, uh, talking to and interviewing a lot of uh, people just on the street as they're doing their thing. And they think that by staying indoors and, and I quote, lowering the curve, um, you know, that they're actually solving the problem. 
the only problem they're solving, <laughs> if if indeed you can, um, is not to overwhelm the system because the system was caught with its pants down. Um, that we apparently didn't learn from SARS-1 and all the other epidemics and pandemics that have uh, whipped by us, that maybe we should have a stockpile, a major stockpile of, of PPEs and masks and, and ventilators and, and God knows what else, so that when, not if, when the next disaster hits us, as if SARS, MERS, um, H1N1, I could go on, um, the Hong Kong flu, the rest of it, these weren't just one-offs. This is just part of something that's going to continue to grow. Well, you know, the world was caught with its pants down. Now you want to lower the curve long enough to be able to allow the medical care system to get equipped and, and do its thing appropriately so it's not overwhelmed, but it didn't solve the problem. As you said in your op-ed, and you've said in all of your interviews, you're delaying the inevitable. And the inevitable and, and, is, you know, those people are going to go out into society and get exposed anyway, you know. Right, right. Yeah, no, so there's a lot there. So I, I totally agree, Pam, that we should have been forearmed. We were certainly forewarned. We all knew the next pandemic was coming. We actually need to address and fix some issues related to sourcing food. Uh, you know, the wet markets need to be shut down. But frankly, some of what we do with mass production of meat in this country needs to change. We have produced a lot of new and really bad bugs uh, because of the way we source food. So we could talk about that. But then, you know, the next layer beyond that, absolutely, we should have national stockpiles of protective equipment. We should be prepared to just say protocol A, protocol B. You know, we, we ought not to wait to be in the midst of a pandemic to first start asking, how are we going to respond to a pandemic? Uh, so, you know, all of that's fairly inexcusable, but that's where we found ourselves. And then once you're in the midst of it, yeah, you have to ask yourself, what are your objectives? And flattening the curve at the start makes sense because you want to avoid what happened in Northern Italy. And frankly, you want to avoid what happened here in New York City, where dense population, lots of older people, and a really strenuous demand on the medical system. So I, you know, I showed up in the Bronx at a hospital a week too late because it took a while to get through the system. I volunteered right away. There's a little bit of bureaucracy. I got deployed. And my colleagues there were saying, you know, it's great to have you here now. Thank you. But we really needed you a week ago when we had so many admitted patients with COVID and no beds to send them to that essentially the emergency department was both an emergency department and a hospital ward at the same time. And so what we needed was volunteer hospitalists to manage the, the, the hospital ward in the ER. I was still doing that, but it was a much smaller service by the time I got there than it had been just a week before, which is good news. Uh, you know, the, the case counts are going way, way down. But you don't want that. And you certainly don't want anybody dying for want of a ventilator. It's bad enough to die on one, let alone for want of one. So flattening the curve makes sense. But then what are your other objectives? Well, your other objectives are, again, total harm minimization. We, we don't want people to die of the virus. We also don't want people's lives and livelihoods ruined because society collapses. But then there's a third thing, and it's got to be part of the discussion. That is, when the heck do we get our lives back? When do we get to the all clear? Well, you know, there are really only two ways for that to happen. One is a highly effective vaccine mass produced and administered to everybody. 
and you know that's optimistically 18 months away, but it you know who knows how long it could take. It could be years. And the other is herd immunity. That's how pandemics usually end. Now, you could get herd immunity by indiscriminately saying everybody back out to the world. But why do that? Because, you know, that means older people, people with chronic illness are, are going to pay a very high price. I don't want that. My parents are 80. I, I don't want them exposed to this bug. But I don't mind going back out to the world because I understand that, you know, people my age and good health very likely will be fine. I mean, that's why well, I felt now, it was okay I'm going to stop you at that moment because what you yeah. said is just beautiful. Now I'm going to give you a challenge and this is going to be an interesting thing because this also has come up in your beautiful writing and your, and your interviews, David. All right. Obesity. Now what's fascinating here is if you look at the numbers and I, again, I'm a number cruncher, <clears throat> Even in China, where the obesity rate, if you can believe the numbers, but anyway, the obesity rate is 6%, right? And they have a, as you know, Asians have an interesting obesity issue. Theirs tends to be more visceral than it does um, subcutaneous. So they may have a skinny little legs, skinny little, you know, arms, but they tend to, you know, pack it on if they're going to pack it on a little bit there. And what they found was in uh, the ICU's, and, and of the people who actually um, passed away, that um, there was a preponderance of those kinds of, as it were, obese people. Um, they tended to, you know, be very common um, on ventilators and in, in, in the severely ill. Flash forward over here to the United States. All I have to say is New Orleans, right, um, where the average, you know, BMI on ventilators um, was 40 and above, uh, with obviously uh, lots of comorbidities. Uh, and I, one could also say the same thing, you know, across the board as you look at uh, from hotspot to hotspot. Um, so here you have uh, people who, um, let's just say, looking at obesity, uh, who oftentimes have comorbidities, whether they know it or not. So many pre diabetics have no idea. Um, or if they're diabetic, they're not taking care of it, uh, let alone hypertension, which is obviously what they found in Italy and other places, including China. So we have a we have a an incidence of obesity in the United States that's knocking on forty three percent, and because the obese themselves have, as it were, a pro inflammatory condition off times with comorbidities, would you not then agree they're in a high vulnerability category? So perfect pivot for me, Pam, because, you know, I want to talk a bit about diet and lifestyle and, and want to talk about how what I've done my whole career focusing on nutrition and chronic disease is acutely relevant to COVID. So thank you. Yeah, we agree completely. So, you know, when we talk about the need for data, when we talk about representative random sampling here in the United States, it's so we can do a more refined job of saying who is at risk. So, you know, things that you mentioned, BMI, weight, it's not dichotomous. It's not just, you know, obese or lean. It's a continuous scale. So if someone's a little bit overweight and they're 40, how does their risk compare to somebody who's more overweight but 30? And how does that compare to somebody with mild hypertension at 50. And you need a large enough sample where your cells can answer those questions. So, you know, maybe that's 20,000 people, maybe it's more. We don't need millions of tests. We need some number of thousands from a representative sample, but the sample should include 
lean and obese and degrees of obesity with and without hypertension, with and without diabetes, heart disease, across an age range, different zip codes, suburban, urban, rural. And then you're able to answer those questions. But I completely agree. So what we can say now with the crude data available to us is, you know, people with major chronic illness, severe obesity, and advanced age are at high risk. People who are young and in really good health and lean are at very low risk. I think we'd have a really hard time refining the groups in the middle, absent better data. And we ought to get those data. And, and we ought to get them now because, you know, we don't need millions of test kits. We need enough to do a representative random sample. Uh, the work of Ionidis in, in, at Stanford and others is helpful. But, you know, it, it's, it was a local sample. Um, there's some questions about the sampling method. It wasn't really representative because they were volunteers. So, you know, we should run this through the CDC, get nationally representative data. And, you know, listen, hunkering in a bunker is not great, but we've already been doing it for long enough. A week is not going to make a, a critical difference at this point, especially if, you know, grownups in charge tell us this is what we're doing. We're gathering the data. We're going to have major updates in a week. So, you know, things are about to get better. But we had to take the time, get that sample, and then address exactly the questions you're talking about. The other thing that, that I think is critical to mention here, and I think you did a really nice job of cataloging, you know, American liabilities, is our health was not great to begin with. You know, we're, we, we're a nation that eats badly and doesn't exercise enough, and we have a lot of obesity and chronic disease, and, and we know how to prevent those things. And all of a sudden, everything that was a, a chronic risk, everything that was stalking us in slow motion has now become an acute threat. So I think there's actually a teachable moment here, Pam. You know, it's a little hard to sell what you and I are into. Lifestyle is medicine, essentially, because of the timelines. Yeah, yeah, you know, I know I'm at risk for heart disease and diabetes, but I can always fix that tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. But all those same people who kind of wait to have their first MI before, you know, getting serious about lifestyle to prevent heart disease are acutely concerned about COVID. And it's all the same risk factors. I would argue that there's maybe never been a better time for a national get healthy campaign, fortify your immunity, make, you know, shift your risk group, go from a higher risk to a lower risk group right now. You can do it in days. You can certainly do it in weeks. And oh, by the way, health is the gift that keeps on giving. It will make you more robust during the pandemic but it will also add years to your life and life to your years, you know, forever after. So, you know, again, if I were involved in running the zoo, I'd say let's have a nationally coordinated get healthy campaign as part of our pandemic response. You know what I, what I, I needless to say, applaud that. Um, and one of the things that uh, one of my um, patients told me um, was if ever there was a wake up call for me, it's now. She said, you know, it's interesting. Um, for the first time, uh, I, I really get it that being obese and being out of shape and, and having the, this extra issue of the, the high blood glucose and the rest of it could damn near kill me, could kill me. You know, people tell you that all the time, like we as physicians, David, tell people, you know, well, you know, if you're carrying 50 to 100 extra pounds on board, it's increasing your inflammation, you've got all these disease risks, et cetera, et cetera. And it goes in one ear and out the other. Then right. along comes this, you know, bouncing virus, bounces right into our lives. And it doesn't give, a, you know, a damn 
about what your name is or body positivity or, you know, all these other, it just simply says pro-inflammation, comorbidities, just what I'm looking for. And, right. and it's just the way it is. And if you put aside, again, I'm looking at this very clinically um, driven by data. If you you've put aside everything other than that, that data, it really says, for God's sake, everyone get the message. If, if you've been complacent and kicking it around and procrastinating and saying, well, I'll get to taking care of myself at some time. Well, I think that sometime just showed up. You know? I, I totally um, agree. And, and, and by the way, you know, all of that makes sense because our perception of risk is a product of evolutionary biology. And it's kind of hardwired into us to worry about things that come at us in seconds, minutes, maybe hours and days. But, the, you know, there was nothing native to the Homo sapien experience on the savanna that, that played out over years and decades that was worth worrying about. So, you know, our fight or flight response, that, that tickling sensation from the adrenal glands, that, that sort of tells you what it's all about physiologically. If I can perceive a threat coming at me immediately, it triggers me. If you tell me, you know, the way I eat for the next 10 years is going to cause diabetes, I, I, I'm sort of blind to that. So what COVID has done... It's taken all the stuff that's always mattered to us, Pam, and has, as you say, you know, in one ear, out the other, because, you know, our patients, eh, yeah, yeah, um, and all of a sudden made it an acute peril within the timeline that our, our brains are hardwired to understand, and there's a real opportunity here, but it, it's a complicated one, you know, and, and by the way, you know, uh, while you're hunkering in a bunker, read How to Eat. It's a really fun book. It's a great read. It addresses all this, um, so, you know, yeah, there's stuff you can do right now. The trouble is the people who most need that, you mentioned New Orleans. Well, you know, New Orleans has a, a really high obesity rate. It also has a lot of poverty. And, and the, the problem for us as, you know, as public health people, Pam, is to acknowledge those who most need this help, first of all, least likely to listen to a podcast, uh, least likely to be buying books about health. Um, inevitably, with public health matters, those who most need your help are the hardest to access. Which is why, you know, in addition to what we're doing here with this conversation and all the things you and I do professionally, there really ought to be a national campaign. And, you know, we ought to make resources freely available and figure out how to reach everybody and free television programming and, you know, all sorts of things we ought to be doing. And maybe mobile units bringing fresh fruits and vegetables to people along with messages about that and um, providing guidance about how you can be active while sheltering in place. And, and, you know, helping people understand the importance of it now, the importance of it tomorrow, and empowering them to get it done, our culture, you know, tends to go the other way. Uh, America runs on Dunkin'. We actively peddle the stuff that, that actually propagates obesity and diabetes. And, you know, you read people like Michael Moss, who wrote Salt, Sugar, Fat, you know, the food supply is sort of intentionally booby-trapped to be addictive because, you know, that's good for corporate profits, but not that's so good right. for our waistline. So that's there's right. a lot in the way. We have to help people get past that obstacle course. I love it. And I love the idea of the national campaign. You and I are going to have a conversation about that because I have thoughts. Listen, I could talk to you all day. I just absolutely love 
your message, David. And I know that all of our Her Podcast listeners are just rapidly taking notes and saying, okay, wake up call. And most importantly, listen, ladies, if you're not running out to get How to Eat, this book is fabulous. Please, please, please grab it because right now's the time while you're hunkering and bunkering and, oh, for crying out loud, just get outside and take a flip and walk, will you? <laughs> um, that's the most important thing. All I can tell you is, um, David, I, I, I'm just so grateful you were on the Her Podcast. And, of course, I'll drag you on, you know, so many more times as this thing, you know, really rolls out. But, David, I want to thank you so much for being on the Her Podcast. I want to thank you for having me, Pat. It's an honor and a pleasure. All right. Now, everyone out there, you heard me. This is Dr. David Katz. Go buy the book, How to Eat. Run to his website, David Katz. That's K-A-T-Z-M-D.com, DavidKatzMD.com. Uh, watch him out on Facebook. He's on Facebook.com, Dr. David Katz, and also Twitter, at Dr. David Katz. And what he loves to do is, is message through all of this social media, um, his website, and obviously his book to, to help you understand why lifestyle medicine is so critical in the era of COVID-19. Okay, now, everyone out there, take a moment, hit iTunes, rate and review the show, and I'm waiting to hear from you right now. You heard me right now. Why? Because I'm Dr. Pam Peek, host of the Herb Podcast. So follow me on Facebook at Dr. Pam Peek or Twitter at Pam Peek MD, and remember to catch every single episode of the Herb Podcast on iTunes or Radio MD. Hey, thanks for listening today. Stay safe and stay well.